0: Welcome to Legal Minds Unplugged News, the podcast from the Bar Association of San Francisco. These special news episodes explore current events and issues that affect our local community in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, David Coy. On March 5th, millions of California voters will decide which candidates will represent their political party in the local, state, and national November elections. In addition, voters will decide on statewide Proposition 1. Here in San Francisco voters will decide on seven propositions, political party county central committees, and superior court judge seats 1 and 13. Today, we have two conversations, one exploring San Francisco ballot measure Proposition E, and another addressing what to consider when voting for a judge. First, we speak with Teresa Johnson, the 2024 board president of the Bar Association of San Francisco and the Justice and Diversity Center. Proposition E is sponsored by Mayor London Breed and proposes an amalgam of changes to San Francisco Police Department policies and procedures, such as administrative processes, police commission powers, the police's use of surveillance technology, and pursuit rules. So let's just start with the first question here. Mm -hmm. And what is Prop E?
1: So Prop E is a proposition that's on the ballot for the March election here in San Francisco, uh, and it's focused on changing in police policing procedures. And the essentially, it's going to implement various changes in policing policy and would reduce mandatory reporting requirements by the police officers, remove safeguards for vehicle pursuits, and permit greater surveillance, take away safeguards on limiting uh, the use of surveillance technologies in the city. It would also include an additional community engagement requirement that would require that there are more
0: community meetings in connection with policy decisions by the police commission. So uh, there's a story behind every proposition. And uh, what is the story kind of behind what is driving Proposition E as it was sponsored by Mayor Breed?
1: As you've noted, it is a proposition that's put on the ballot by the mayor. It's being positioned as a proposition to foster and increase greater protections for public safety. And I think in the current climate, given all of the concerns in the city and understandable concerns around public safety, the the drive for this ballot measure is around trying to find ways for the city and for the police department to have ways to, to protect the public more effectively. And from the Bar Association standpoint, those are incredibly important goals. The Bar Association is very committed to protecting public safety. That's a, that's a pillar of our work. In thinking about Proposition E, though, we do have concerns about the way that that is implemented because it seems that certain elements of it are actually likely to have the opposite effect and be more dangerous for public safety, as well as presenting some other concerns in exist, in connection with existing legal requirements on the city and existing processes that are in place and embodied in
0: various city ordinances. And so um, that leads us to our next question of because there are, when we look at policies passing, there is at twenty thousand feet and the ground level, and so let's start at twenty thousand feet. What are the implications for the city if Prop E passes? So Prop E
1: embodies basically four big changes, and it's a it's a very comprehensive and uh, and fairly dense new statute. So. The first big change is that it will reduce reporting by police in connection with various things, including use of force incidents. The Proppy will also limit the ability, the, the amount of time that police officers spend on administrative tasks to not more than 20% of their time. The second big change in Proppy is that it's going to remove some safeguards regarding the use of vehicle pursuit. In other words, high-speed car chases through the city. The third thing in Proppy is that it's going to eliminate existing protections and checks and balances on the use of surveillance technologies, uh, such as drones and cameras. And the fourth thing is that it's going to in- institute additional community engagement requirements that are effectively duplicative of
0: existing community engagement procedures that are already in place. One of the greatest challenges for a city, any government really, uh, is how does a policy actually translate to the impacts of the everyday lives of citizens? And so what are the individuals for, um, or what are the implications for individuals if Prop E passes? Because not only, I, I think to myself, I don't live in San Francisco, but I work in San Francisco, and if I come visit in San Francisco, uh, that policy change is going to affect me, especially if they are uh, using uh, the use of face scanning technology or AI to um, monitor certain areas of the city.
1: In terms of the effect on individuals, there are going to be a number of different points. You mentioned the effect of, of surveillance technologies, which... Prop E would expand and permit. So effectively, the Prop E would allow for the police department to undertake surveillance technologies through cameras and drones and public monitoring. Uh, this would also limit the ability of the board of supervisors by instituting supermajority requirements for changes to the law, so it se- essentially limits the ability of the Board of Supervisors to be able to restrict or modify the surveillance technologies that that would be permitted under Prop 8. so that sort of thing one. So the key implication for individuals in the city is with respect to the uh, broader ability for the police to undertake vehicle pursuits. We're concerned about removing guardrails on vehicle pursuits because it's going to imperil public safety. Having greater flexibility for the police to undertake a, a high-speed car chase is is going to be um, present challenges to public safety. We understand from uh, data that the police vehicle pursuits can result in injury or even fatalities and the US Department of Justice recommends restricting police pursuits as a way to prevent these kinds of casualties so that's the one key element of the change in proppy e that would you'd experience as an individual an additional thing is that proppy e will provide additional flexibility for the police department to undertake surveillance using cameras and drones Uh, That may allow new additional uh, and potentially harmful technology to be deployed without approval of the Board of Supervisors. Propy bakes in the idea of a supermajority approval from the Board of Supervisors to make changes in the law, which would have the effect of making it much more difficult for the Board of Supervisors to modify it, so to to employ additional checks and balances uh, and safeguards. The other thing I would note in terms of individual impacts is that Proppy is gonna limit the amount of the amount and kind of reporting that a police officer has to do, and in connection in particular with use of force incidents. And so that can have adverse implications both for the individuals involved in such an incident as well as for the officers themselves, because For the officers themselves, it may provide uh, important protections for them to have a well-documented record of the use of force so that if there are questions later in any uh, internal inquiries or otherwise, that they have clear documentation of
0: of the, the reasons behind the use of force and the specifics of it. I think everyone agrees that we want to make sure that the police are using their time as best they can and supporting public safety, and we don't necessarily want them spending all their time filling out paperwork. So we understand the burden of paperwork for the police. What would the administrative change mean for police in this case?
1: So Proppy e is going to limit a police officer's administrative tasks to 20% of her time. BASF has concerns for several reasons. First, police officers do not track their time, so there's no current mechanism that would accurately measure that percentage of time. And of course, that amount of time could vary considerably from officer to officer and from task to task. Uh, Secondly, the provision regarding reducing reporting requirements could undermine important city ordinances and DOJ reforms that are designed to provide transparency around police practices and to shine a light on racial disparities in SFPD detentions. And we understand that these racial disparities do persist based on data from the, the police department. So. The 20% data time cutoff could effectively mean that officers don't have time to submit demographic data on police encounters, nor to write incident reports or to provide detainees with information on how to file a complaint with the Department of Police Accountability, for example. Proppy proposes that body-worn cameras would be... Footage from body ward cameras could be used as an alternative to written reports. But unfortunately, that's really no substitute given the necessary redaction and processing that has to be done for that kind of footage to be released in connection with an inquiry. And that redaction and processing, which can be time consuming and burdensome, wouldn't be required for releasing a written report. Uh, again, Propi decreases officers' documentation requirements specifically for use of force incidents. And this, again, undermines transparency best practices. Plus, it can put officers at risk of future litigation. It's actually potentially bad for them because in connection with internal reviews or or if there is an outside claim, if they don't have adequate documentation of those incidents, that may present a risk for them. The other thing on reduced reporting is that it The Prop EU language runs counter to various Department of Justice requirements, which uh, directed officers to increase and improve reporting regarding use of force. And back in 2016, the DOJ did a review of the San Francisco Police Department and criticized the police department for not adequately documenting the use of force incidents by adopting the changes in Proppy e that would effectively turn back the clock on important reforms that the police department
0: has implemented and continued to refine since that time. Bassif believes that public safety is a cornerstone of civil rights and civil liberties. Why is Bassif concerned about potential passage of Propy? E?
1: So it's worth noting that Bassif is a, an organization that represents individuals and members from all walks of life and businesses of all shapes and sizes, large companies, small businesses, everything in between, our members represent both criminal defendants and victims of crime. And many of the folks involved in BASIF are deeply affected by the kinds of public safety challenges and frustrations that are giving rise to property in the first place. But given all that, let me share why even given that understandable frustration, it is critical that from the standpoint of public safety and best practices and complying with binding legal requirements, that We'd be very cautious in adopting changes to policing policies by ballot measure, and based on BASF's review of Prop E, it presents material concerns. BASF has had a criminal justice task force since 2015, and that task force has included judges, prosecutors, public defenders, private defense attorneys, and law enforcement with the mission of supporting best practices and innovative ideas in criminal justice reform. The task force has worked hand in hand with the police department and also with the police commission in the interest of public safety and effective policing, looking at best practices from other jurisdictions, other policing organizations, et cetera. And the history of work and collaboration on these issues, especially through the task force, I think has given us a very keen sense of appreciation for the complexity of policing. Policing and policy development are highly regulated under not only the state, not only the federal constitution, state law, DOJ recommendations that bind the city and city ordinances. And with that lens in mind, we're concerned that adopting police policies at the ballot box rather than through the informed and expert lens of policing uh, of the police department and the police commission is inconsistent with best practice. And some of the policy changes that are outlined in Prop E, notably removing safeguards on police pursuit, may actually increase risks to public safety rather than the other way around, given that the data shows that
0: police pursuits can result in casualties and even fatalities. Terry, thank you so much for uh, sharing Bassov's thoughts on uh, Proposition E. Proposition E will be voted on by San Francisco voters on March 3rd as part of the California primary. Our second conversation is with Mary McNamara, who leads BASIF's Independent of the Judiciary Committee. The committee seeks to empower the public with information to help voters have a greater understanding of what to consider in judicial elections. Mary was the 2022 board president of the Bar Association at San Francisco and the Justice and Diversity Center. One thing to note, BASIF has a second committee that vets judicial candidates and provides ratings, not endorsements. Staff and leadership of the Bar Association of San Francisco are walled off from this process. The ratings of the Judicial Committee were published on January 29th. For seat 1, the committee rated Judge Michael Beggart, well qualified. For seat 13, the committee rated Judge Patrick Thompson, well qualified. Challengers Albert Zecker and Gene Rowland did not respond to our request to participate. This is the first time in at least 15 years an incumbent or challenger has not participated in the judicial evaluation process. Today, we're speaking with Mary McNamara, 2022 BASIF and JDC president. And uh, this year, she is the chair of the Independence of the the Judiciary Committee for BASIF. And Mary, can you go ahead and tell us about the IOJ?
2: Good morning, David. Yes, uh, the IOJ was formed uh, uh, many years ago by the Bar Association to um, deal with questions that might compromise judicial independence in uh, San Francisco. Examples would be uh, criticisms of particular rulings by particular judges, potentially not getting the facts right, for example. And the Bar Association decided to step in, form a committee to assist the public's understanding of the facts of the situation. And back in in those days, uh, the canons of judicial ethics which are the rules that govern judges and their ability to respond, were very restrictive. And the judge simply couldn't uh, make a response herself. uh, And that led to uh, an imbalance of information to the public. So that was the original thought behind the independence of the Judiciary Committee. And in more recent times, we've had a series of uh, election challenges now to sitting judges, and so we have um, essentially updated our mandate to uh, educate the public on what kinds of things the public ought to look for in a a judge and to to educate the public on what sorts of issues judges tackle and what they can't tackle, things like that.
0: That's great, because certainly um, I have found myself looking at a ballot and seeing judges from across the state uh, that I have to vote on and thinking, well, I don't know. That's really, and so I'm just so glad we're able to do this because Uh, we, it's a bit of a mystery sometimes what you look for in a judge when voting for them. It's such a good point. And so, uh, what are just, um, I think to start, what are some of the characteristics that you look for when, um, Uh, evaluating a judge? Um, It's a great question, David, because
2: I think there's massive confusion. And I think the um, judiciary is one of the most mysterious branches of government to uh, most people. And I will say, I I know all the lawyers listening to this will understand and agree that they get frantic calls on the day that people are filling out the ballot and they say, what the heck do I do with this? Um, I think the best starting point in evaluating a judge and deciding how to vote is in the uh, results of the vetting processes that various bar associations do. Our bar association, Bar Association of San Francisco, uh, has a judiciary committee. It's different from the one I chair. Uh, that judiciary committee; um, it, its sole purpose is to vet judges, including sitting judges who are in contested elections or who are up for appointment by the government. Uh, I'm sorry, the governor, um, and the. Uh, the essentially the categories that the bar Association looks for are the following uh, a candidate's integrity a candidate's overall judgment uh, a candidate's intellectual capacity to do the job a candidate's legal experience and expertise a candidate's professional ability a candidate's industry or level of hard workiness so to speak and um, Judicial temperament, very important. Decisiveness, ability to uh, transcend personal biases, which I think is one of the great hallmarks of an independent judiciary. The ability to step outside of what one might feel oneself, decide the case on the facts and the law, and without fear or favor. And then the, the other um, uh, factor is uh, the level of community respect the candidate enjoys. And I can tell you a little bit about the vetting process, if you'd like me to continue in that vein. Yes, please. Okay, so um, the vetting process is a very intensive one. Uh, People on the Bar Association Judiciary Committee um, get essentially a form that the candidate or the sitting judge fills out. Um, That form will discuss uh, in as much detail as possible. And for quite a number of years back, all of the cases, uh, these are litigation cases in court, uh, that the judge or the candidate has handled, who the parties were, who the prosecutor was in criminal cases, who the lawyers were on each side in civil cases, identifying them by name and contact numbers, and also including some references. And the Judiciary Committee then appoints people to do the vetting process and they telephone and contact all the people mentioned in these documents. And they go further. They go to people not mentioned in the documents so that there is a level of independent control over the vetting process. I've done that. I've been. I was chair of the judiciary committee uh, uh, a few years back. It is a very, very intensive process, and it it requires a lot of dedication from the people on the committee. At the end of that process, um, the bar association looks at four categories of qualification: not qualified, qualified, highly qualified, or exceptionally well qualified. Those are the four categories, and so. If the Bar Association issues a rating in one of those areas, I think that's a pretty good indicator for a voter as to the quality of the candidate. So it's an ex- it's an extremely valuable tool. And I, I just want to publicize uh, the availability of that tool here to folks because it's the one hard piece of data you can actually get.
0: Well, and it's a nice reminder, too, that these are not endorsements because... Uh, BASIF is a nonpartisan organization and that these come out every year about early February or so to give voters an opportunity to learn of uh, really it is the quality based off of all these various factors. Uh, it's really uh, and learning about the diversity of the judicial committee from small to large firms and backgrounds, that there are all these different angles that they are being evaluated from. And so it's a really valuable tool. So that will be released on sfbar.org in early February or so. When we look at all these different kind of qualities of a judge, it reminds us that, you know, there are all these different, why might an individual find themselves in front of a judge? Because not just of committing a criminal or civil crime, Uh, it's really, I'm so curious because uh, just what are these different reasons that people find themselves in front of a judge? And it also will show why these um, qualities are important.
2: Yes. Um, All all great comments and a a really good question. Um, It's surprising the number of areas of of ordinary life that the San Francisco bench, the judges here touch. Uh, The thing that probably would affect many people is probating a will. So if you die and you've you've uh, made good provision for the folks in your family and you have a will, uh, that will has to, in most cases, go through the probate court. It has to be administered. Uh, you have an executor there dividing up assets. Uh, it is a very uh, painstaking process. A judge must decide, make decisions during that process. So that's one area that I think many people will be familiar with. And then it spreads into many different areas. Uh, This is, in many ways, a renter's city. If you have a dispute with your landlord, that can end up in court. There is a very speedy process called unlawful detainer, uh, where if your landlord is trying to uh, evict you, that process has to go to court, and it's done in a very speedy fashion here in the San Francisco Superior Courts. If you want a divorce, that ends up in family court. If you have child custody issues, also in family court. If you need to get a restraining order from somebody, family court, uh, same thing. If you've got any kind of dispute, if you uh, trip and fall outside somebody's premises and you need to sue them, that goes to civil court. If you were a big business and you get into a dispute with a competitor, you might go to the complex civil court. Um, If you need to Uh, have a family member go into a conservancy, uh, and that's a, a very arcane term, but people will be perhaps familiar with it from the Britney Spears case where Um, There was an allegation that Britney Spears couldn't handle her own affairs, and so her father put her into essentially uh, a legal situation where he could control uh, her affairs. Those questions go to uh, a conservancy court. Um, And then there's the criminal divisions. Um, There is the, if you are charged with a misdemeanor or a felony That goes into one of the criminal courts. Um, There is the CARE Act court, uh, something that one of the challenge judges, uh, Judge Beggart, is uh, assigned to. That deals with people who have mental health issues or disability issues and need resources and need some uh, uh, essentially state help. That goes into that court. There's a veterans court, same idea. Uh, So there's a really broad... Array of courts here in San Francisco. And I might add, if you get called as a potential juror, you are going to go down to one of these courthouses, the civil uh, courthouse or the criminal courthouse, and you will see in action uh, the judge is doing a really masterful job in trying to assemble a fair and impartial jury. Um, making the best they can out of the inconvenience that is uh, visited on everybody. But it's actually, I find it quite an inspiring experience to go down there and see this in in action.
0: One thing that has has certainly been a hot button issue, I think here in San Francisco, um, is around bail hearings. Why is someone out on bail when uh, they are accused of a crime? And so it really, it seems like that, could use some just some just general clarity. Yeah. What, um, could you just go in, uh, in and kind of just explain a bail hearing and just really kind of what's its purpose and, and kind of how it works in the larger process? Yes,
2: uh, and I'm glad you asked that question. I do think there's confusion here. Um, first of all, just a little bit on the law. The law has recently changed uh, with respect to uh, how a judge evaluates whether or not a particular defendant should be released on bail versus detained in custody. Um, the case is called Humphrey. Uh, it's a California Supreme Court case. It is uh, the law of the land here. And Humphrey requires the prosecutor essentially to come forward and say uh the, the defendant poses a, an extreme danger or risk of flight, and that there aren't conditions of release that could assure safety of the community uh, or the defendant's appearance in court. Um, and, and Humphrey essentially abolished the old system of cash bail. So that's a big change in the law and the judges here must follow that law. Um, and how the process, and, and I should say, this is how bail decisions get, uh, uh, managed in federal court. The Humphrey decision is very similar to the standard used in federal court and nobody is accusing federal judges of, of being, uh, you know, lenient on, on bail. Um, The way the bail hearing works is um, it's a very fast process. Uh, The prosecutor comes in and lays out uh, the facts that um, the prosecutor believes require the person to be detained. Sometimes the prosecutor agrees there is no need to detain the person. And if the defense lawyer also agrees, as the defense lawyer will, then the judge mostly, uh, most of the time will release the person as no danger to the community and likely to show up for future court appearances. But if there is a contested hearing where the prosecutor is asking for uh, the defendant to remain in jail and the defense lawyer is saying, no, please release my client, then the Humphrey decision comes into play. And the prosecutor must lay out a case for why it is that the person must be detained. And that requires uh, a proffer of evidence, meaning the prosecutor explains to the judge what the facts are, uh, in an effort to convince the judge. And then the defense lawyer argues the other side. And then the judge's job is to evaluate both presentations and come to a decision. So it it is a very um, good example of how our system actually works well. We are in an adversarial system where the judge is a neutral party and must decide which of these two arguments is the better argument under the facts or the law. And sometimes the judge disagrees with both and says, well, I'm not going to release the person without any conditions, defense lawyer. I'm going to impose drug treatment, or I'm going to oppose some sort of uh, restraint like electronic monitoring, that kind of thing. Um, the other thing to understand about bail decisions is they happen orally, there's usually no paper record. So there's no brief filed by anybody and the judge doesn't issue a written ruling. And one of the, um, I think, uh, pieces of confusion about that is, uh, when something is, I- orally done, it is, l- it's less easy for the public to say, read a ruling and understand the basis of it. You just see the result. So, um, that's essentially the, the encapsulation of bail.
0: That's great and very informative and especially around the, the fact that there is no kind of written record of it. So it is under this cover in some way, but, um, you know, the public, uh, how it's shared in the media, you know, can only do so much.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, as with most rulings, um, it's very hard to communicate the complexity Of any particular decision in a public setting because um, it requires you to sit down and pay attention to all the facts and who has the time. And so uh, I think, you know, again, judicial elections are a, a very weird animal. Uh, judges are not politicians and I'm sure we're going to get into that. Uh, but they have to explain themselves in a neutral way and uh, it takes, it's painstaking and to look at the result often, it just doesn't give you a good sense of what the actual facts, the ground facts were.
0: Well, and that leads into electing judges. That's, um, how would you like to kind of go th- into that? Yeah, yeah,
2: it's it's a it's a yeah. great question because I, again, yeah. you know, a lot of lawyers are even confused about uh, how judges are elected in California. So I'll say this: um, it, first of all, a majority of states in the country allow for some form of judicial election. California is one of those states, yeah. but um, the way superior court elections work is this, uh, and and I will also say at the beginning. The vast majority of judges uh, in the Superior Court, the Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court are appointed by the governor. They are not elected in the initial phase. And then uh, for there is a system of retention elections for the, the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court justices. But for the Superior Court judges here in San Francisco and across the state, um, if a judge is elected, that judge sits for a six-year term, and only if somebody comes along and challenges the judge for her or his seat is there an election. Otherwise, you never see the judge's name on the ballot. Right. The, the judge continues to serve and and for another six years and so on and so on, so forth. So most judges here in San Francisco have never been challenged. It has been a rarity that there have been challenges, although there are there have been more in recent years. Um, so that's the first thing. I, people I think will be especially surprised to see, oh, I didn't I didn't know about electing a superior court judge because it it's kind of rare. Um, the, the, the law absolutely allows for judicial election. There is nothing wrong with challenging a judge for her or his seat. The law permits that. I think the question is, and it goes back to the first thing we talked about, which is what are the qualifications or the categories? or the uh, decision making tree that would be most appropriate, I think, for a healthy judiciary. And I think one of the problems that electing judges poses is it may put in the voters mind that a judge is simply another elected official, like a politician, and should be evaluated in the same way. Are you hard on crime? Are you soft on crime? Are you pro-tenant? Or are you pro-landlord? Those kinds of things are going to undermine judicial independence. And the minute we have judges who appear to be answerable to certain constituencies, we're really threatening the prize of our system, which is judicial neutrality, impartiality, not being answerable to interest groups. And that will affect the citizenry's view of whether or not they can trust a judicial decision.
0: That's a great point because, uh, these, uh, they're not politicians. You know, I think a lot of people think of, uh, will think of them as umpires as it is calling balls and strikes based on the rules that are established. If those rules change, it means their rulings will change. And it's very hard when a judge has donors too, because you have a constituency that a lot of people then believe that you have to deliver for. And, um, I believe it was in Alabama that uh, judges who are on the ballot sentence more people to death during uh, an election year. And so it just shows how that can influence our system. And it also threatens the independence of the ju- of the judiciary.
2: Um, I think that's unquestionably true, David. And I think if you were to ask sitting judges what they think, I think in their heart of hearts, they would think, first of all, having to respond politician like on specific decisions puts a lot of pressure on them. Uh, and it may shape how they decide things in the future. There, there is a huge amount of pressure to avoid that. And the fact that the pressure seems to be there, I think is inherently corrosive. You raise a really excellent point about money donors. Um, I think it is, uh, I, it, it is a real problem that, um, judges now feel like they have to, in the words of one challenged judge some years ago, dial for dollars. Mm -hmm. That is not what we want our judges to be doing. We want our judges to be deciding cases impartially. And we want to have judges on the bench who pass the kind of vetting that I've described for the Bar Association. And by the way, um, the state has a similar uh, vetting process. It's called the Judicial Nominations and Evaluations Committee, or JENNY for short, Mm -hmm. They do exactly the same thing that we do in the Bar Association and vetting candidates. So um, you you want people who've gone through that intensive uh, process of being looked at um, by their peers in a very sort of inquisitive and critical way. You don't want people um, feeling like they have to appease a donor or respond to criticism that they are, you know, influenced by certain interest groups. Those are very troublesome aspects of judicial elections.
0: That's great. Well, the term dialing for dollars, I think, it has become such an issue for all of politics in America, where instead of uh, different representatives working together, they're going down the street, you know, to uh, some faceless office building to do nothing but make calls, whereas uh, we do not want the judiciary to start getting in that, really. Um because they should be focused on the law. They should be focused on those balls and strides. That's right. I think we've done a really great overview. How can voters learn more about these issues and learn more from the judges themselves?
2: Um, Fortunately, there's an event coming up, uh, February 1. It's a Zoom webinar, um, and it's a forum on the importance of an independent judiciary. And um, I'll be moderating that in my capacity as chair of the uh, Independence of the Judiciary Committee. We're going to have uh, an excellent uh, group of judges and justices of the California Court of Appeal present. Um, There will be um, Justice Terry Jackson Uh, California Court of Appeal, Um, she was the former presiding judge here in San Francisco Superior. Um, Justice Anthony Klein, uh, retired also from the California Court of Appeal, Uh, deeply um, expert on uh, the law and a deep thinker on these issues, and a former um, judicial appointment secretary to uh, Governor Jerry Brown. So he really understands from the inside out the the appointment process, and also, as with all of these judges, the election process. Uh, Judge LaDoris Cordell, who um, was a superior court judge in Santa Clara County, Uh, Judge Lillian Singh, Superior Court judge in San Francisco, Judge Julie Tang, same San Francisco, um, and Judge Erica Yu, who's also a Superior Court judge in Santa Clara County. And um, the judges, I think, will be able to explain in more detail than I um, how, for example, the assignment process works in San Francisco. If you are newly appointed or newly elected as a judge, where are you likely to be? Um, And uh, I think they will explain how they feel about, uh, you know, judicial elections and the pressures that come with having to raise a lot of money. Um, And what... Uh, if anything, they're allowed to say in response to criticism. And we can we can cover that too. Uh, I think it'll be a very lively debate. Uh, it is being co-sponsored by the League of Women Voters and uh,
0: ourselves at the Bar Association. And um, this podcast will be coming out around then. So uh, if you're listening to this after February 1st, we'll make sure a recording of the webinar is available um, on sfbar.org and our social media channels on uh, Facebook, um, X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, and LinkedIn. And you can sign up for it in real time at Eventbrite. Mary, thank you so much for your time today. Mary McNamara was the 2022 board president of the Bar Association of San Francisco and the Justice and Diversity Center. She is chairing the independence of the Judiciary Committee for the 2024 uh, March 3rd election uh, that will be taking place here in San Francisco. Mary, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, David. Pleasure. Thank you to Terry and Mary for sharing this crucial information that will affect all San Franciscans, people who work in the city, and visitors from around the world. We would like to thank our Leader Circle firms for their support of BASIF. The Leader Circle is a select group of law firms that have chosen to support the Bar Association of San Francisco through office-wide BASIF membership. By supporting BASIF's Leader Circle, law firms and managing partners gain unique opportunities to develop attorneys build brand awareness, and connect with other influential legal leaders in San Francisco. You can learn more about becoming a Leader Circle firm and BASF membership at sfbar.org backslash membership.